Good morning. And it is indeed. Today's scripture for our lesson can be found in the book of Second Peter. So if you'd like to turn there with me, uh, the words will also be up on the screen. It's Second Peter, chapter 2, starting with the second half of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous, blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever come, be, overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after turning to it from the holy commandment they were delivered. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you for um, your mercy and your kindness and all the wonderful gifts that you Give us in the way of common grace. Uh, Lord, you give to every human being throughout all time common grace. And Lord, we, we saw a picture of that up here this morning with those beautiful kids. And Lord, we thank you that um, for your grand design to, uh, to fill the earth with your creation and that, we, that you enable us to multiply. And I thank you, Lord, for your saving grace that, um, that many here this morning... Um, have laid hold of, that have obtained by nothing that they have done, but by everything you have done through your grace. 
And Lord, I pray that in this uh, very difficult section of Scripture, Lord, that, um, that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be uh, reminded of our great salvation, and that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, by your mercy, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I do pray for um, anyone that is here today. Lord, only you know the heart. Uh, pray for anybody that's here today, Lord, that, is, that, that knows that they have not ob- obtained salvation. God, I pray that, that you would draw them to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that if there's there, those here today that, that maybe profess faith in Christ, but, but they're, they're living a life of, of licentiousness with no repentance, God, I pray that, um, that you would um, just compel them to examine themselves and see if they're in the faith. And so, Lord, help me stand behind your word. Uh, Lord, I want to bring uh, no offense to it. Uh, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored and that these, uh, these dear people that you brought here today, that, they would, that they'd be edified, they'd be more in awe of their great creator and their amazing Savior. And it's God's people who said, amen. Good morning. It's great to see, darn, I just turned off my iPad again. I do that by accident. It's good to see you all. Um, the, uh, how many of you have, um, s- who has not seen The Wizard of Oz here? Anybody at all? There's, okay, that's probably good because it's a little scary. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit scary, especially that little, one of your kids has seen it? That, Mitch, have you seen it? Wizard of Oz? Of course, right, yeah, you wrote it. <laughs> So The Wizard of Oz stands as one of the, the most famous movies ever made, right? I don't remember what year it was. I think it might have been in the 40s. And most of you do know the story well. Uh, Dorothy is stranded a long ways away from home in the land of Oz and must see the great and powerful wizard so that he might help her return to Kansas. Along the way, she meets her three traveling companions and has some different adventures. And then finally, she becomes she comes before the mighty wizard which causes Dorothy and her friends to shrink back in fear and awe. However, all's not as it appears to be. Near the end of the movie, the wizard is revealed to be not quite as powerful as his image might convey. You remember the story. Dorothy's canine component, Toto, draws back the curtain, and the wizard is revealed as an ordinary man who willfully and boldly delivers promises to these weak and uninformed travelers. All of us know that in, that in real life, appearances could also be deceiving, can they not? In today's passage, Peter reminds us that the false teachers are not who they appear to be. Though they might put forth uh, promises of freedom and hope, their message is actually one of slavery and false promises. False teachers like the great and powerful Oz would say something like this, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But Peter today is going to encourage and equip us to take a look behind the curtain and to help us identify false teachers. If you're here with us today for the first time, just so you know, we didn't like uh, go, you know, let's see. Yeah, this would be a good verse to preach. It's, we, we teach through a book of the Bible. Uh, that's, t- that's about, about 60 or 70% of the time. Occasionally, you know, we'll do, a, we'll do an Advent series. We'll do an Easter message, a Christmas message. We'll do something different in the summer. Um, if there's something that we see in culture or in this body, we'll do a, a short topical series. But most of the time, we teach through the book of the Bible. And we're in Second Peter right now. 
And this is the verse that God gave us for this day. And I trust that, that God has something for each of us here today. That his word is living and active. And he gives it to us to accomplish his good, per- and, good and perfect will. So, um, so I know God has something for each of us no matter where we're at. And you might ask, why is this important to me? Why should I pay attention? Maybe you're not yet in Christ. Maybe you are a new Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, that you are a professing Christian for a long time. Well, verse 2 in chapter 2 says that many will follow these false teachers. And many means, the Greek word for many means many. There'll be many people who follow these false teachers. And then he describes this many in verse 14 as unsteady souls. Those that don't have a firm footing in God's words. It's these unsteady souls who will be enticed or baited by false teachers and their false promises. These unsteady souls are ones that are uninformed, that are new Christians, maybe weak Christians. Those who are not yet grounded in the foundational truths of God's word. Remember heresy, we talked about this last week, feeds on the flesh. That heresy is, um, the, the heresy that Peter's talking about, if, if the truth is right in the center of the bullseye, heresy is not off the target. Heresy is all around the bullseye. It is de- it's, it's deceptive. It's hard to recognize. Certainly there's heresy that's outside the uh, target, but the, what Peter's talking about is those secret heresies, those secret lies. Today in chapter 2, Peter's going to encourage us to look behind the curtain of any teaching, including my teaching, and to help you and I identify the destructive lies of false teachers, to help you and I understand their strategies, to help you and I understand um, where their teaching ultimately leads them and will lead you if followed. In chapter 1, verse 19, we talked about this last week. I need to touch on it, that Peter testifies to seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in all of his glory. And after that, he says this. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. You see, folks, God's, God's word is given to us to comfort us, to protect us, and to direct us. It's to point us to our creator and to our savior. It's one storyline about one main character. It's knowing and paying attention to God's word that enables us to know the ultimate truth from lies, from the lies of relative truth. And we live in a culture that is full of relative truth. And what I mean by relative truth is, is that, is that um, what I believe from God's word is good for me, but whatever you want to believe based on your feelings and your emotions is okay for you. That's relative truth. And what Peter's talking about is that ultimate protection from false teachers, that the way that we identify false teachers is understanding and paying attention to the ultimate truth of God's word. We see in verse 9 that the Lord uh, Peter says to weary travelers in this world, weary Christians, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. 
And we may not be rescued from our trials here in, on this earth, but we will certainly be rescued from our trials when Jesus returns again to judge the living and the dead. And after he encourages the godly or believers, he, and by the way, the godly is not good people. The godly are people that put their faith and trust in Christ's perfect life and his sacrificial death for the remission of their sins. But after encouraging these believers, he also affirms that the Lord will judge unbelievers, those whom he refers to as unrighteous. And then in verse 10, he refers to these false teachers, and he says that this coming judgment is especially going to affect false teachers and other professing Christians who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. These are ones who continually feed their fleshly desires or the corrupt desires of their flesh without any, um, without any repentance, without any conviction. That, that these are people that somehow profess faith in Christ, but they're going to live um, any way they want to live. The, the word authority, despising authority, comes from the same Greek word as Lord. So what he's talking about is that those who are going to suffer this judgment are those who despise the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who profess faith in Jesus, but they go live their lives any way they choose. And we'll talk about more of this in a minute. Let's look at the second half of verse 10. Peter describes these teachers as both bold and willful. He says, bold and willful, they do not, they, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Take a look back at verse 1. Peter says that these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now Peter warns us that they will be bold, that these false teachers will be bold. They'll be secret, they'll be bold, and at first glance it seems to me like it's a contradiction. How could they do it secretly yet be, yet be bold? They usually come in secretly or deceptively like Oz behind the curtain. And Peter's warning us of a, of a heresy that comes from the mouths and writings of those who profess faith in the one true God. I don't want you to miss that. That's where the boldness comes in. They come into our midst. It's their books. It's their podcasts. It's their, uh, and there's the false teachers. It's, it's on the bookshelves. But they come in boldly with all of that. But they have secret and deceptive heresies. Their lies are secret because they have the offer of something that appeals to our flesh or the veneer of truth. And oftentimes false teaching involves compassion, it involves culture, and it involves relationship. And for, for the weak or uninformed Christian, it can be easy to be led astray. It happens slowly, it happens secretly. Um, let me give you a couple of examples to, in, in today's day and age. There is, a, um, there is a pretty well-known author, and I'm not going to use names. I didn't use them in the first service. I'm not going to use them now. A pretty well-known author who um, wrote a book, actually, that my daughter read, and then I think my wife read as well. And it was a pretty, they were pretty encouraged by it. Well, this particular author has come out in the last week and said that, that she affirms the union of one woman with one woman. In the name of Christ, she affirms that. And so, uh, so, so this, this woman um, has a really good reason for it, actually. This woman says this. She says that we need to stop judging the LBTGA, uh, Leslie, those four letters. We need to stop judging that community, and we need to start loving them and accepting them. She's right on her premise. 
she's wrong on her theology. Because as, as ones who were saved by grace, as one who stands up here in front of you as a chief of sinner whose sin is no less than any homosexual couple or any other sin that's out there. My sin is no less and in many ways is probably more. But for somebody that is saying that, that, that it is okay to profess Christ and then go ahead and live in disobedience to God's word is heresy. So the word is, that the, the truth is this, that is a church that, that anybody that, um, that is in the LBGT community, that we're to love them. We're to have a relationship with them. We're to serve them. We're to not judge them. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians says, who am I to judge? Outsiders? He says, no, you're to judge insiders. And what he means by that is that when there's, when there's unrepentant sin in the church, if there's somebody sitting here with us that has been married same sex, I'm just using this as an example. It's not exhaustive. And they're sitting amongst us and they go, you know what? Yes, we are professing believers in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins and we chose to be married. We say, you know what? Um, we love you, but you are living in sin Help us um, help you repent from that. But in the same breath that there's somebody sitting here, same-sex marriage, and they, they have not come to Christ, come on in. We love you. Let us show you the way of Jesus Christ. So, so false teachers are all around us. I, have a, um, I serve on the Western District Board of the Missionary Church. And it's been a, play, a privilege to do that, and, and we get to see the, 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 the problems in ministry, and we get to see the, 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 the joys in ministry. And one of the problems, I was at a board meeting here in the last four or five months, beginning of the summer, and uh, Mike Livingstone, who is the superintendent, brought something to our attention. He says, uh, there's a man in our midst, uh, a good man. He's been a pastor in this denomination for 25 years. He, um, he leads the Pastors Institute for the Missionary Church Western District. And he just got caught in a 12-year adulterous relationship. Okay, now what's not crazy about that is that, is that, we're, uh, that, that he did it and I didn't. Because we're all capable of it. You need to understand that. If you think that you are beyond that, that's when the enemy grabs a hold of you and you fall. But what's a shame about this is that every Sunday he got up here like this and he preached that Jesus died for your sins and he is a king and ruler of your life while he's living in sin. That's heresy. If you were to meet this guy, you would actually want to invite him to your family gatherings. You would want to fire me and hire him because he is the most brilliant theologian you'd ever want to be. You want to sit at, his, sit at his feet and you want to learn from him. He's eloquent in speech. He knows God's word. And I asked Mike, I said, what happened to this guy? And he says, you know what? I don't know what else to call it but intellectualism. That, that he knows God's word so well that it got stuck in his head. And then it, was an, it became an intellectual ascent. rather than a relational a relationship with Christ. That's heresy. And I pray that the Lord would, would cause this man to repent 
He didn't acknowledge it. He got caught. So there's just a couple examples of heresy that are in our midst. And folks, as we're going to see here, um, it's so subtle today. It's so subtle today. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at verses 10 through 13 really quickly. Peter gives us an example of these false teachers' bold and willful deception. And this is a very difficult section of Scripture. Um, it's, yeah, verse uh, 10b through, uh, through 11 yeah, Peter says this, he says, They, the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Here's what's difficult about this. Who are the glorious ones in this passage? There's commentators that say three different things. Um, some of the commentators say that the glorious ones are people like P- Peter who are teaching truth. There's some commentators that say that it's, that it's actually good angels that are the glorious ones. But I don't see how it could be good angels because it says, um, they, the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, good angels, whereas God's angels, good angels, though greater in might and power. So that does not make sense to me at all. Where I've landed on it, and I I won't take a bullet for this, is that it's it's fallen angels. It's, It's Satan and his demons. And it reads like this. They, the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, the fallen angels, Satan and the demons. Whereas God's angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And if, you're, if you want to do further study in Second Peter, um, I would encourage you to read Jude. Jude is a companion book to this. It's, it's almost verse by verse in many places. And Jude says this. He says in, in uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 8, yet in a like manner, Jude's talking about false teachers, yet in a like manner, these people, false teachers also, rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Then he gives us a contrast. But when the archangel, archangel Michael, the number one, number one angel of God's army, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, the number one angel of, 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 the, of, the, of the dark side, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a, a blasphemous judgment. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And folks, be careful of this. There are um, churches all over the place, particularly those on a particular television station that has three letters and starts with a T, that... that um, that wasn't my out loud voice. I didn't say any names. That, 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 that continue to want to call out Satan. Call out Satan. Be gone, Satan! God does our biting. He does our bidding. God does it. God, would you rid this place of Satan? Would you... Um, I'm believing the lies of Satan. How do we reject the lies of Satan? We know the truth of God's word. It's not going to work just to to banish Satan. He's around whether you like it or not. The question is, is how do we live in abundance and victory in the midst of this dark world where Satan is the king of this world? It's by believing the truth of Scripture and letting the Lord do our bidding. And then Peter emphasizes the fate of, of these um, false teachers. He says they will be destroyed just like they're destroying their hearers and they will suffer wrong as a wage of their wrongdoing. We'll go to the second half of verse 13. 
It says that these false teachers kind of pleasure to revel in the daytime and, and, that, and they're reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They count it a pleasure to conduct their business um, and their false teaching in public. And unlike the Wizard of Oz, they step from outside the curtain and deceive us. And they, it says they actually feast with us. And this is a picture of the love feast um, in, the old, in, the, in the New Testament. It's actually the meal before communion. That these, that these false teachers are there. They're at, the, they're at Sunday gatherings. They're at conferences. They're certainly in our bookshelf. They act like one of us. They eat with us. They participate in church gatherings. But as John MacArthur says, he says they... Um, you're not going to hear me quote John MacArthur very often, by the way. So really write this one down. Uh, they, they were filthy defects on these church gatherings. Their books are bestsellers. Their churches are growing. They may have a large following on Twitter. They may have some of the most popular blogs and podcasts, but it doesn't make them safe. In verse 14, it says they have eyes full of adultery. They, have, they are insatiable for sin. They can't get enough about it. Adultery means unfaithfulness. You know that. But, but I don't believe that Peter's talking about necessarily sexual unfaithfulness. He certainly is, but he's talking about the type of unfaithfulness that Israel was. That they were unfaithful to their God. That what they professed with their mouth, they didn't live out in their lives. That's unfaithfulness. They made vows, so to speak, in the vernacular of a marriage, but they didn't live up to those vows. Not that any of us can, but they, they didn't even feel bad about it. And it says that they, they entice those who... Actually, I don't have that written down there. In verse 14, it says, they entice unsteady souls. They entice unsteady... And that literally means to bait unsteady souls. They bait those who are not able to recognize the hook of heresy that is hidden beneath the attractive-looking bait. And these unsteady souls are also talked about in verse 18 as those... They're described as those who are barely escaping. And these false teachers, they prey on the weak. They prey on uninformed Christians who are hungry and hurting and vulnerable. And these hungry, hurting, vulnerable Christians too quickly grab a hold of the bait of false hope and false promises that can lead them to death. And then we look at verses 15 through 16. Paul describes the greed of these false teachers. He describes it in the character of, of Balaam, actually, who, who forsook the right way and followed the long, wrong way. He went astray. And Balaam, like these false teachers, loved gain for false doing. Balaam served as an illustration and an example of such false prophets. He was an Old Testament prophet compromising. And he was for sale for whoever wanted to pay him. And I'd encourage you to read that story. It takes us to verse 17. He describes these false teachers as waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. I want you to picture yourself in a, in a desert, dry and parched, when in the distance you see trees and grass sprouting up. And in desperation and thirst, you, you run for these trees, thinking that there's going to be a spring there, and you find it bone dry. 
You see, this spring had an illusion of satisfying, but was dry and full of rocks and sand. And if, and if you digested the contents, it would kill you. These false teachers are also described in verse 17 as mists driving by a storm. You know those springtime Colorado storms with lightning and thunder? It's beautiful. You pull up your lawn chair and just, just watch it. But there's no moisture there's nothing to water the ground. And it's like these, it's like these bold, willful, deceiving heretics where they, they might be great orators. They might seem to have a great message. But there's nothing that ultimately waters our soul. We come up dry. It says in 17, second half of verse 17, that what's reserved for these false teachers is utter darkness. And that refers to hell. They're not beyond hope. They can turn from their sin. In verses 18 through 22, this last section of Scripture is the most straightforward warning to the church about the perils of being drawn away by this false teaching. You see, these false teachers promise freedom, but it's a false promise. They preach a message of licentiousness. And the main error in their teaching is falsely giving Christians the permission to continue sinning. They're saying now that you profess faith in Christ, you are free to live as you please. That's false and it's dangerous. It doesn't mean we're not going to sin. And it also doesn't mean that when we sin we're going to lose our salvation because you can't. But what he's speaking to here is false teachers that have never been saved and the people that follow these false teachers that have, really, that have never been regenerated. Their heart has never been turned from stone to flesh. In Peter's first letter in, in chapter 2, verse 16, he says this. He says, he encourages the church. He says, live as people who are free. Live that way. This is a glorious life the Lord gave us. That he's given us life abundantly. In Christ, that we can live the victorious life because of God's Spirit in us and His Word that He avails us in the amazing body of Christ that we get to be surrounded by. He says, Live as people who are free, but then He says, Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. In Romans 12 1, it says this He says, I appeal to you, brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let that be your worship. It's not up there. I forgot to put it up there. And, and that's what we do. We're not saved by works. But works are an indication of our salvation. You are free from the penalty and power of sin believers. You are free from the power of Satan. You are free from death, from ultimate death. You are free, but you're also a servant of God, meaning you've been purchased by the living God, by the shed blood of Jesus, and as God's children, we are not free to live as we please. Peter made mention of this deadly teaching in verse 1 as well. He identified the lies of the false teachers and he singled out this dangerous teaching. He called it denying the master who, who bought them. And master is sovereign Lord. 
And the way that these false teachers deny the master who bought them is by living their lives in accordance to the master of this world and not to the master whom they profess faith in. Heresy will always in some shape or form give you permission to not live in submission to Jesus as your Lord and Master. Jude 4 calls this perverting God's grace. Perverting God's grace. Um, let me, we're going to slide into communion here in just a few minutes. But let me read to you Romans uh, 5, verse 18, through Romans 6, verse 4. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam's sin affected the human race forever. As, as one trespass, one sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. That Jesus' finished work on the cross leads to justification for anyone who puts their faith and trust in that. For as, by, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, his perfect life, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We've been given God's word that's a constant reminder that we fall short, that we can't do it on our own. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Or the sin, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen. So that as sin reigned in death, grace, grace might, might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? If that's true, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's, that's, the, that's the core truth of what happened as a result of our justification, the great exchange. That we were born again. The old is gone, the new has come. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know all of us who have been baptized or united into Christ Jesus were baptized or united into his death? We've died with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And may that be our prayer today, that we would walk in newness of life, that, that our belief and our trust in what Jesus accomplished that would overflow, that we'd have such a, a, a desire to live by faith and to walk by faith and walk in obedience. And in verses 21 and 22, this is the key verse. There's two biggies here. That these false teachers professed faith. Let me read it, verse 21 and 22. Starting in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after watching herself returns to wallow in the mire. It would have been, it would have been better for these false teachers to not have known the way of righteousness. 
they appear to have been saved. That's a conundrum. They appear to have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Yet they returned to the vomit and mire of the world and they demonstrated that they were never truly regenerated. They literally turned their backs and went back to the vomit and the mud of this world. You see, folks, in 2 Corinthians 7 it says this, that, that, um, that there's a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. See, everybody has some kind of sorrow. Um, this guy that got caught in the Western District, he's sorry he got caught. It messed up his ministry. He lost his job. He might lose his wife. Who wouldn't be sorry about that? But the question is, the question I have for him is that, um, do you have a sorrow that leads to repentance? In Galatians, it talks about this battle that believers have inside of them between the spirit and the flesh. And if you've got that battle going on inside of you, inside of you, that, that good angel, bad angel thing that you see in the cartoons, it's, that is, be encouraged because that is one of the primary evidences of salvation. That you've got this battle going on inside of you. That you have a conviction. That you have sorrow. And that that conviction and that sorrow lead you to what? To repentance. You see, Satan condemns, but the Lord convicts. Let me finish up here uh, before we go to communion with John 10, 27-29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they what? They follow me. What does follow mean? Voting Republican? Do not shake your head yes. I'm going to come back there and knock that right off your shoulders. Forgive, forgive me, Lord. What does follow me mean? Going to church every Sunday? What does follow me mean? What follow me means is that, that there's a different direction in your life. Not perfection. God doesn't save perfect people. And we're not going to be perfect people until we're in glory one day. Are you with me on that? Don't let the enemy lie to you this morning. If there's not conviction, if there's not sorrow that leads to repentance, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a professor. Not like in the university, but you're a professor of Jesus Christ. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. If you know Jesus Christ, you will never perish. He will never leave you nor forsake you. There's nothing you did that was good enough to be saved, and there's nothing you can do that's bad enough for Him to leave you. It's a conundrum. But Paul says, examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And I would say that that's primarily for those that are maybe, um, that, that have been wandering for years, who profess Christ, but there's, but there, it, there's no fruit. And if there's no fruit, you've got to ask the question, is there a root? Folks, there's, uh, we have two primary pillars here at Windsor Community Church. We have the Sunday gathering here, and we have community group. And um, we are serious 
about Jesus. That Jesus is the only hope for the world. And we oftentimes say that, that we exist so that people might come to know Christ. And that they would grow in their knowing, that they would grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ by, by knowing his word, and that they would go and tell others. And these two primary environments, if you will, these two pillars, the Sunday gathering community group is where that happens. And if I could encourage you that, and encourage me as well, I need this as well, that it is hard to know heresy today. It's hard to know what you're listening to, what you're reading, and what you're even hearing on Sunday morning is truth. And in Acts, it says that the Bereans um, didn't just take what Paul had to say is truth, actually. Paul. He says that they, they sifted through the word to see if what Paul was saying was true. They examined the word to see if what he was saying was true. And I would encourage you, whatever blogs you listen to, whatever uh, uh, you're reading, whatever podcast you're listening to, um, whatever conferences you're going to, bring those to your community group. Talk to your spouse about it and say, hey, I'm reading this. I'm listening to this. Could you help me understand if this is truth? We live in a day and age where it's harder than ever, is it not? How do we know the guy? I, I've told you this before. I did a radio show when I was a stockbroker. I would, I would actually, there's times where I would actually sit in the, like the bathroom stall um, listening to Keith, Keith Wyman on KOA. I would listen to his stuff. I'd write it down, and I would just go ahead and tell it on 7.60 a.m. in front of God and everybody. And I just hoped that Keith Wyman was true, was right. I confess that. We're new, there's nothing different about us reading and listening to well-known, and I'm not saying stop doing that, please. I'm so grateful for podcasts and blogs and books. I'm addicted to all of that. And God, and, I'm, and I benefit from all of that. But you've got to look at it closely. And you've got to bring others in the picture look at it with you. Are you with me on that? Can we do that together? Give me a nod. <laughs> Thank you. So we, uh, we're going to slide into communion. And... Um, during this, uh, this sermon series of Second Peter, we're, we're celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, every Sunday. Typically, we do it once a month. I don't know what we're going to do afterwards. Uh, pastors are going to be talking about that. But in the meantime, um, we are going to um, celebrate and remember what Christ did for us. And um, I want to just remind you that these, when we take these elements, um, Jesus instructed his disciples to, to, um, to remember his finished work on the cross until he returns again. And what we're remembering here this morning is that you and I, every one of us, are the chief of sinners. And that we were hopelessly lost. But Jesus in his mercy became flesh and he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that you and I deserved to die. And then he victoriously rose again from the dead. And one day, he'll come back to rescue us from this dark and wicked world that we live in. And he'll come back to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. And he says, eat this in memory of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood, the blood of the new covenant. It was shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. 
So on your own, just uh, come up the outsides along the wall, then go back up the aisles. Um, take it, uh, take it back to your seats, and and uh, and remember his finished work. Do it on your own timing. I won't be leading you through it, but the band is going to be leading us through song, and just uh, sing or just sit there and um, and spend time with the Lord.